As I prayed about how to approach the next passage, I decided that there is just too much in verses 18 to 25 to try and tackle in a single week. Those eight verses contain a massive amount of truth, and I don't want to rush our way through it. So my plan this morning is to deal primarily with verse 18, which is the headliner of the coming passage. Verse 18 establishes the main idea of the paragraph, and then verses 19 to 25 proceed to explain that main idea. This is evident from the fact, as, fact, as you just sort of look down the, the paragraph, that verses 19, 20, 22, and 24 all begin with the word for or because which tells us that those verses are providing explanation for the main proposition in verse 18. But if you look at the beginning of verse 18, you'll see that it too begins with the word for or because, which indicates that even though it is functioning as the the main proposition of what follows itself, is closely linked to the preceding paragraph, especially that last clause of verse 17. So as we look at that, what I decided to do is to deal with those two main propositions this week, verse 17 and verse 18, which stand at the head of all of this massive truth that is coming our way in the verses to follow. So let me read verses 17 and 18 where we will spend our time this morning. If we are children, Paul says, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Two main propositions stand at the head of this massively important paragraph. Number one, those who will inherit God's kingdom with Christ are the children of God who will suffer with Christ. Those who will inherit the kingdom with Christ are the children of God who suffer with Christ. And proposition number two, the way to suffer with Christ is to suffer as Christ did. Namely, by considering the coming, out glory, the coming glory to outweigh the present gain. The way that you endure sufferings and persevere through them so that it can be said that you suffered with Christ is to approach those sufferings as Jesus himself approached them by looking beyond the suffering to the glory that is to come. This morning I'm going to camp out on those two propositions and draw out from them five implications for the children of God, which I believe will pave our way to the study of the second half of Romans chapter 8. Because if the theme of the first half of Romans 8 was the indwelling presence of the Spirit within the children of God, then the theme of the second half of Romans 8 is the invincible purpose of God in the suffering of His children. My hope for this church 
over the next five weeks or so is that we would become a strong, steadfast people who are unmoved and unfazed when suffering and trials and tribulations come our way because we knew it was coming and we were prepared for it when it came. I want us to be a people who endure suffering like a lighthouse in a hurricane. Standing firm, continuing to shine, though the winds howl and the rains drench and the waves beat upon our shores. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, not only should you not be surprised when sufferings come, you should rejoice in those sufferings. Because if, and only if, you rejoice in those sufferings, Will you also be, able to be enabled to rejoice and be glad when the revelation of Christ's glory appears? My job as your pastor is to prepare you for glory. That's my primary calling. I'm to get you ready for God. To prepare you for glory. Therefore... I must prepare you for suffering because unless you suffer with him, you're not going to be glorified with him. Unless you rejoice in Christ's sufferings, you will not rejoice to share in his inheritance. With that in mind, let's dig into Romans 8, verses 17 and 18, and draw from it five truths about suffering which will either help us to make sense out of our past or present sufferings or to prepare us for those sufferings which are to come. Truth number one, the children of God suffer right alongside the children of the world. That's the truth that needs to be established before we can proceed any further is that the children of God suffer right alongside the children of the world. So let's just be done from the outset with this fallacious and heretical notion that when we are adopted into God's family, then we're done with suffering. If that's the way you think, the second half of Romans 8 is going to make no sense to you. That idea is so prevalent today. And not only in those health, wealth, prosperity sectors of Pentecostalism, it undergirds so much of evangelical thought. The most popular evangelism tract of the 20th century was probably, undoubtedly, Bill Bright's Four Spiritual Laws, which begins with this bold statement. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I am not suggesting that Dr. Bright or Campus Crusade, they're the ones who published that tract, would actually deny the reality of suffering in the Christian life. That's not what I'm saying. What I am suggesting is that if 
God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is the way you introduce the gospel to an unbeliever. It is no wonder they come away with the impression that when they receive Jesus and become a Christian, that they're done with suffering. How could suffering, they think, be a part of God's wonderful plan for my life? So we need to be very, very cautious about what we promise people in the gospel lest we write checks in God's name that he never intended to honor. God does not promise you that you won't get sick. God doesn't promise you that you won't lose your job. God doesn't promise you that you won't lose your marriage. God does not promise you that your kids will not go astray. God does not promise you that you won't starve. God does not promise you that you will not suffer. In fact, he promises you that you will. Now, last week I read no less than five passages from the Apostle Paul, all right? Philippians 1, 29, 2 Corinthians 1, 5, 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, Acts 14, 22, and Romans 5, 3, and 4. Five passages which emphasize the normalcy and the necessity of Christian suffering. Now, I don't need to repeat those passages or the numerous others like them found in every book of the New Testament in order to reiterate this point. We don't even need to leave this passage. Twice, Paul makes it plain that the children of God, who are distinct from the children of the world, suffer just like the children of the world. Just look at verse 17. If We are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. So if glorification is the final destination of every child of God, and it must be because the opposite of glorification is disintegration and destruction, and no child of God is headed for destruction, then so is suffering the means of glorification for every child of God. It's the way Paul says it works. If you don't suffer with him, you're not going to be glorified with him. Second, in verses 22 and 23, Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, most Christians will admit that creation is groaning, that it's fallen, that it's subject to futility, as Paul says in verse 20, that it's in bondage to corruption, verse 21. Most Christians will admit that the children of this world are part of that fallen creation and likewise are subject to futility and bondage to corruption. But Paul goes further in verse 23 and emphasizes that not only creation and not only the children of this fallen world, but we ourselves who have the Spirit groan under this futility and corruption of this present age. Well, what's he talking about? What are we groaning about? 
Well, at the very least, it means that we groan because of the futility and corruption of our physical bodies. Because Paul specifically says that we're groaning while we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. He's thinking of the resurrection. In other words, while our bodies remain unredeemed, they remain subject to futility and in bondage to corruption. So let me spell this out for you. You, child of God indwelt by the Spirit of God, are subject to aging, to arthritis, to disease, to cancer, to depression, to dementia, to car wrecks, to falling on the ice and breaking your hip, to every other physical malady that afflicts the children of this world, you are subject to those things as well. You are subject to the futility of doing everything you can to maintain your physical health, and yet you will still age, you will still grow weak, you will still get sick, and you will still die. But the suffering Paul mentions here is not limited to our physical bodies. It extends to every unglorified human faculty. You will suffer under the effects of sin, those effects that are found in others as well as the effects which are found in yourself. You will say, even though you are a child of God who has the Spirit of God dwelling within you, you will say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There will be times in your life when under the, the, the struggle and the wrestling and the battle with sin, you will just throw up your hands in desperation and say, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? You know what that is? That's groaning inwardly under futility and bondage to corruption as we await the redemption of our bodies and the adoption as sons. So, We need to establish from the very get-go, just lay this as the foundation for the next five weeks in the second half of Romans 8, the children of God suffer in all the same ways as the children of this world. Establish that right now in your mind and in your heart and in your theology. Suffering is the necessary and normal lot of every child of God. Establish that now so that when it happens... In the words of Peter, you won't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. You won't grow embittered because you think God hasn't kept his promise of his wonderful plan for your life. God never promised his children wouldn't suffer. On the contrary, he promised that they would. Number two, nevertheless, he promises that the suffering of his children will be purposeful. This is where the difference between the children of the world and the children of God lies. It's not that the children of the world suffer while the children of God don't. Rather, it's that the children of the world suffer in futility while the children of God suffer in the accomplishment of a glorious purpose. Think of it this way. The suffering of the children of God is transformative. It's like the suffering of an athlete 
who makes his body suffer in order to reap the reward of increased strength and extended endurance. The suffering of the children of this world is punitive. It's punishment. It's the consequence of their rebellion against their creator. Suffering does not have any transformative effect upon the children of this world. It only causes them to grow more embittered and more angry, thus furthering their disintegration and alienation from God. The same is not true of the children of this world. In our case, all of our sufferings work together to produce eternal glory. That's Romans 8.28. That's the huge skyscraper of a promise that is on the horizon. That's where we're headed. All of your sufferings, every ounce of them, physical, relational, spiritual, mental, every form of suffering will work for your good. That is to produce for you an eternal weight of glory that otherwise would not have been produced. Let me establish this truth textually, and then I'll I'll tell you how I think it works. First, Paul establishes the connection between suffering and glory in verse 17, right? If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified him. So there's a connection between suffering and glory. Verse 17 doesn't explain what that connection is. It just establishes there is one. If you suffer with Christ, you'll be glorified with Christ. It's down in verse 28 to verse 30 that we begin to make sense of this connection between our suffering and our glory. There Paul says, and we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now look here with me. The all things in verse 28 refers to the suffering of verses 17 and 18. It refers to the groaning of verses 22 and 23. It refers to the weakness of verse 26. It refers to all of the sufferings and the groanings that are ours in this present age, in this present world, that are the theme of verses 17 to 27. That's the all things that Paul's talking about in verse 28. And he says that God is going to cause all of those things, all of that suffering, all of that groaning, all of that weakness, to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. That is, for the children of God. Now, what good does Paul have in mind? Well, that question is answered in verse 29. It's going to work to conform you into the image of Christ. And in verse 30, in other words, it's going to work to bring you to glory. God predestined his children to suffer because he predestined them for glory 
and suffering is the necessary means of glorification. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4.16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. But how does this work? Okay, we've established the connection between suffering and glory, but how, how does the suffering actually produce the glory? I think if you remember back to Romans 5, Paul answered that question. Beginning in verse 2 of Romans 5, he says, Through him, through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, right? You see glory there? That's our hope. We're rejoicing in that hope of glory, which is ours through faith in Christ. That's verse 2. How are we going to get there? How are we going to get to that glory? Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put to shame. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. There's the connection. There's the link. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character, conformity into the image of Christ. Character produces hope, and hope leads to glory. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 1.6. In this you rejoice. In what? The hope of glory. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says suffering is like a refiner's fire. It purges away the dross of sin. It purifies our faith and our hope and our love. There are lessons that can only be learned through suffering. There are sins that can only be killed through suffering. There is character that can only be built through suffering. Every ounce, every ounce of suffering that you experience in this life as a child of God is producing for you an immense weight of glory that will endure for eternity. Which means, and this is so radical of a thought, there will come a day when you will thank God for not healing your disease. For not saving your marriage. For not answering those desperate prayers to deliver you from those painful circumstances. Tim Keller says that if we knew what God knows, we would want what God wants. And we would pray in accordance with his will. God wills us to suffer. Which does not mean that he delights in causing us to suffer. Nor that he approves of the sins which so often bring that suffering upon us. But it is to say that he knows that our sufferings will multiply our everlasting joy exponentially. John Piper gives an illustration of this. It's it's based upon 
Paul's wording in verses 22 and 23. So I'm going to read it again to you. Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we are also groaning in the pains of childbirth as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Piper says that if, if you're in a hospital room and you hear a woman screaming in pain down the hall, it makes all the difference in the world to know that you're in a maternity ward rather than an oncology unit. The groans of the maternity ward are the groans of impending life. The groans of the oncology unit are often the groans of impending death. Okay, So the groans of the children of this world are the groans of impending life. The groaning is necessary, but the result is eternal life and glory. So in the midst of your suffering, it makes all the difference in the world to know which unit you're in. We're in the maternity ward. Our groaning is bringing about glory. Number three, when the children of God suffer, they suffer with Christ. So not only does the suffering of the children of God produce everlasting life and glory, it's also a participation in the sufferings of Christ. This is the way Paul speaks. Look again at verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ or with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. We're suffering with Christ. And this isn't the only place that Paul talks like this. Philippians 3.10, right? He's expressing his heart's desire. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let me tell you what Paul does not mean. Paul does not mean that your sufferings have any redemptive value as if by our sufferings we're contributing to or adding to the redeeming work of Christ. That's not what Paul means. We do not, through our sufferings, merit nor contribute to our own redemption. Rather, what Paul means, I think, can be understood in three ways. Three forms of participation in Christ's suffering. First, there's participation by imitation. Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 says of Jesus that although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If in Christ's humanity, suffering taught him obedience then won't it have the same effect in our life? Suffering produced glory in Christ's own life, and when we suffer as he did, it has the same effect in ours. So suffering with Christ, therefore, means suffering in imitation of Christ. But it also means identification. Think back to Acts chapter 9, when Paul's on the the road to Damascus, and Jesus appears to him in that bright light, blinds, um, Paul and, and everyone there, they have to look away. And, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul asks, who 
are you, Lord? And Jesus replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But Paul was not carrying in his possession letters of arrest for Jesus. He was carrying letters of arrest for Jesus' followers. And yet, Jesus says, Paul, Saul, you're persecuting me. In other words, Jesus so identifies with his followers in their sufferings that to persecute them is to persecute him. When the children of God suffer, they suffer with Christ. Turn that around. When the church suffers, not only does Christ identify with him, they are identifying, or not only does Christ identify with them, they're identifying with him. There's an identification going on. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. Let us go suffer with Christ. Share in his sufferings. Identify with his sufferings. But thirdly, there is participation by extension. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is, the church. Now this is dangerous language, but Paul wasn't afraid to use dangerous language. He doesn't mean there's anything wrong with Christ's sufferings. He doesn't mean there's anything lacking in the redemptive value or the sufficiency of Christ's sufferings. What he means is that it takes his own sufferings, Paul's own sufferings in the cause of world missions. Think of the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, the beatings, the stonings that Paul suffered getting the gospel to the nations. It takes Paul's sufferings in order to extend the effect of Christ's all-sufficient redemptive sufferings to the nations through the word of the gospel. His sufferings link the sufferings of Christ with the nations. And the same thing is true in our sufferings. Our own sufferings in the name of Christ extend the redemptive sufferings of Jesus to those to whom we are bearing testimony. So what's the takeaway of this? Three of them. Because your sufferings are an imitation of Christ's sufferings, you can know that you are not the first person to tread this path. Jesus did. He's not calling you to go somewhere that he hasn't gone ahead of you. He's not calling you to follow him somewhere he isn't willing to go himself. It's the same principle that I use when I go to Whitewater. And I go up, and when you're driving up, you see the Kalani Towers, which is essentially a 75-foot free fall. And I think to myself, all right, 36 years old, you can do this. Maybe you shouldn't do this, but you you can do this. If there's no one ahead of me, it's a whole lot harder for me to climb those stairs and take that plunge. But if I'm following someone who is willing to go ahead of me, especially if that someone's an eight-year-old girl, and I can see, I can see that they made it without dying, then it gives me courage to go as well. Likewise, I can take a look at Christ And I can find courage looking to Jesus 
the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself in order that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's already gone, so go after him. Secondly, because in your sufferings you are identified with Christ, you don't need to suffer alone. Jesus is with you in your suffering, and so is his body, which is the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all suffer together. Speak to those believers who have endured tremendous suffering and yet have persevered and remained faithful through it, and they will tell you that even though it was painful at the time, they would not trade that pain nor wish it away because of the closeness and the communion that they felt with Christ in the middle of it. And thirdly, because in your sufferings you are extending the sufferings of Christ, your suffering has eternal significance, and not only for you, in producing for you an eternal weight of glory, but for all those who are watching you, watching you endure that suffering in faith and in hope and without losing your joy. Even if your sufferings are not in the cause of global missions, like Paul's were, your perseverance through suffering testifies to the gospel of Christ. When you refuse to grow bitter or to lose faith, but rather you respond by saying, as Paul did, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed. You are painting the gospel of Christ in vivid, vibrant colors upon the canvas of your life, and you are filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. In other words... Your sufferings are not just your own personal misery to be miserably born. Your sufferings are part of God's global historic purpose to bring about the redemption of the world. How's that for putting your suffering in perspective? Fourth, if all of the above is true, if the children of God suffer by the will of God, if their suffering is for the purpose of producing eternal glory, if their suffering is a participation in the sufferings of Christ, then it follows that if they refuse to share in Christ's sufferings, they will not share in Christ's glory. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 17, isn't it? If you don't suffer with Christ, you're not going to be glorified with Christ. Now, I'm telling you these things now so that... I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does... You won't throw away your inheritance. So many people have been sold a false bill of goods by a gospel that said, come to Jesus and your life will be wonderful. Your problems will be solved. Your marriage will be saved. Your kids will behave. Your sickness will be healed. And then when it, when it doesn't happen, they feel like they've been had. They figure God cannot be trusted and that they're better off just cashing it all in and wringing every last drop of pleasure out of this life because who really knows what to believe about death and sin and judgment and what's to come? A better way to present the gospel would be 
Come to Jesus and receive him as your Savior and your Lord and your life and your love, and you will become a child of God. And every suffering which comes upon you will be permeated through with divine purpose, and every ounce of pain will produce for you an eternal weight of glory and ever-increasing joy. Now, if that is the gospel that you received, if you were taught on the authority of God's word that suffering was the normal and necessary lot of every child of God, you won't feel picked on when it happens to you or abandoned or deceived by God. Instead, you will say this is exactly what he said it would be like. He promised that I would suffer, and I have But he also promised that I would inherit eternal glory if I persevere. And that's exactly what I aim to do. So beloved, when suffering comes your way, don't throw away your inheritance. By walking away in despair or disillusionment and unbelief, hold fast. Don't give up. Don't throw it away. Suffer with Christ that you may also be glorified with Christ. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, resulting in eternal glory and everlasting joy. But that wonderful plan includes suffering. Number five, suffering is overcome by considering the coming glory as greater than the present pain. That's how you endure. How do you suffer with Christ without giving in and giving up and throwing away your inheritance? It's right there in verse 18. Four, Paul says, I'll tell you how I do this. I consider that the present sufferings, all the beatings, all the stonings, all the shipwrecks, all the imprisonments, all the problems from the Jews, all the problems from the Gentiles, everything, all of it, it's not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. The key to endurance is to consider, to regard as true that the glory to come far outweighs the present pain. It's as if Paul has a balance scale and he's placed his present suffering on one side and his future glory on the other and he's seen that the future glory right, far outweighs the suffering. Or maybe even better, he's looked at the present suffering in light of the future glory and he doesn't even think it's worth putting them on the scale. So evident is it that the future glory far surpasses the the present suffering. It's like, it's like looking at a feather and a bar of gold. There's no need to weigh them. So what is the glory to be revealed to us? I think that the context provides us with three realms of this future glory. Touched on this last week. I want to hammer it home this week. First, here's what Paul's thinking of and he says, the glory to be revealed. First, he's talking about the glory of the new creation which we will inherit. This is what Paul alludes to in verse 21 when he says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the glory or the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So in the resurrection, creation itself will be glorified. The glories of this present creation are just a pale shadow of the glories to come in the new creation. But that glory of the new creation would be wasted upon us if we too were not glorified. 
If we were placed in the new creation in our present states, our unglorified bodies would be unable to handle it, and our unglorified souls would simply hate it. C.S. Lewis teases out this idea in The Great Divorce when the people from the, the gray city, which is his figure for hell, they come to the outskirts of heaven, but they find it to be too real and glorious for their paltry capacities. So they turn around, they get back on the bus, and they return to their hellish existence of their own accord. They're not glorified. They can't handle it. Even so, Paul anticipates the glory of the redeemed children of God. Verse 23. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the same thing Paul was talking about in verse 19 with the revelation of the sons of God. In verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In the resurrection, the children of God will receive glorified bodies and glorified souls, which will enable them to enjoy a glorified creation. Listen, there are heights of joy that await you that your mind cannot even conceive. I want you to think of the happiest moments of your life. And then consider that those moments of sheer joy and ecstasy were immeasurably marred and weakened by the corruption of your body and your soul. Now remove that corruption and replace it with a glorified body and soul which has endless capacity for endless joy. That's the resurrection. But a glorified body and a glorified soul and a glorified creation would be empty were not the glory of God present, shining brighter than the noonday sun. Creation is is just a mirror. Men are just an image. They possess no inherent glory. Take away the glory of God, and there's only darkness. Like a hall of mirrors, right? A hall of mirrors opens up to infinite reflections and infinite worlds and infinite realities, but not if the hall is dark and there's no light to illuminate it. So the primary reference of the glory to be revealed is not the glory of the new creation, and it's not the glory of a renewed body and soul. It's the glory of God himself, which is the foundation of our future hope. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. How do you conquer? How do you persevere to the end? How do you suffer with Christ in order that you may be glorified with Christ? By considering that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with that glory to be revealed. Now, I have one more point to make, which is not in this text, but I think is implied both in Romans and in the rest of the New Testament, and it's this. Suffering is not a solo endeavor. It's a church endeavor. No child of God should suffer alone. The church should come alongside the suffering member and help them to persevere. 
1 Corinthians 12. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Or Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. The fact is, when you are suffering, it is hard to do everything we've talked about this morning. It's hard to consider your present sufferings to be light, momentary afflictions. It's hard to consider your present sufferings to to be far outweighed by the glory to be revealed. Why? Because everything hurts and you're dying, right? It's horrible. The present pain clouds your vision of the future glory. So what are you supposed to do? That's when the members of your body come alongside you and remind you of the future glory. They they abide with you and aid you in your present suffering. They exhort you to not throw away your inheritance, but to persevere in faith and hope to the very end. They bear one another's burdens. So let's be a church not only that understands the normalcy and the necessity of Christian suffering, but a church where no child of God suffers alone. Let's be a church that flocks to those whose marriages have failed, whose jobs have been lost, whose loved ones have died. Man, I would love to see funerals in this church where the whole church comes out to grieve with those who are grieving instead of only those who knew them personally. When one member suffers, all suffer. When bodies have broken down, when babies have miscarried, when our sins have brought our worlds crashing down around us, we need the members of the body to remind us that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. That they will inherit eternal glory with Christ if they suffer with Christ and don't give up. So let's be a church where no one suffers alone. But together we persevere in hope until we see that future glory dawn.